you'll open up your insert, we're looking at Luke chapter 20. Last week we mentioned the very first Christian confession, the confessional statement. It's a three-word confession. Anybody remember what it was? Jesus is Lord. There we go. Jesus is Lord. That was the first, first century confessional statement, which basically means Jesus is master. He's in charge. Jesus is authority. Now that had special import in that culture because they were required to say in the first century Roman Empire that Caesar was Lord. Caesar was king. And that's a saying somebody's Lord is an ultimate claim. Can't have two ultimate authorities, right? So to say Jesus is Lord implied Caesar is not. So in the first century, saying Jesus is Lord was actually a revolutionary statement. It was a revolutionary statement that could get you in trouble. So be it. Jesus is Lord. And that is what the first, that's how the first century Christians were known by believing and saying and living that Jesus is Lord because it cost them something. And last week we looked at the authority of Jesus. This passage has this conflict over Jesus' authority and noted that if we know Jesus but don't know him as the authority in our lives, we don't know him because he in and of himself is authority. You know a form of Jesus but not Jesus if he's not your authority for the simple fact that unlike anybody else in the world, he is in his self-authority. So uh, we saw the, that conflict and the leader's reaction to that, and now we're seeing more of that same story, that same theme today. We often talk about this, the, 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 the direction of the gospel story. Mark just mentioned in his prayer, and that is, you know, just the 30,000-foot the view, God creates things that are good, sin comes in and wrecks and breaks and distorts everything, and then God himself steps in in Jesus. And through his life and death and resurrection gives us a way. Gives us a way in some way to recapture what we've lost and to anticipate where where things are headed as God renews all things and eventually renews them back to their former glory and beyond. So we can like pre-enact or uh, enact beforehand where we're going. Uh, That, uh, and this only happens of course through union with Jesus through faith and entrusting ourselves to benefit from that life, death, and resurrection. And out of this union flows a life where we, we follow him, which, as we saw last week and we'll see this week, looks like submission to him. Submission to his good authority. I'm putting myself under something. That's why I'm crouching down. Like We think of authority above us, Following Jesus simply means saying, Jesus, you are the authority, but not just the authority. That's still not knowing Jesus, just to think of him as authority. You are the good authority. That's who you are in your person. You're not just authoritative, you are, but you are good authority for your people. That's what we were created for. We were created to be under the authority of Jesus, We are recreated for that. That's where we're headed. But it's almost impossible to see in a world bent and distorted with sin. But as we saw last week, that's why Jesus can say, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is his yoke easy? Because we're made for it. We're created for that. Though we can like, wear a lot of other yokes, we can, we can push against it. We're actually made for it. I, I think that it's possible to live for some time drinking only Sprite. I'm not sure about that. Our drummer, Joe Erler, is making a test out of Diet Coke at this time and for many years. So Joe's still alive. Um, I think you can live on Sprite because there's water in it. As tasty as it might be, and as surprising as this might be, we're actually not made for Sprite. We're made for water. So Sprite is an uneasy yoke to our soul. (laughs) If we're going to live on it, we're just not made for it. We're built for water. We're built for water. So that means there's a lot of things in our life that we can engage in that we're just not made for because it doesn't fit our original design frame, our original design intention. So we are not actually built for gossip. Now, we can do, like, like you could try to live on Sprite or Diet Coke, but you're actually not built for it. You're not, we're not built for gossip, though we can engage in it. We're not built for cynicism. We're not built for hostility. We're not built for selfish sexual practices. We're not built for pride. We're not built for anger. We're not built for greed. We're not built for dishonoring authority. And we kind of get a clue to this because, like, just think of everybody engaged fully in that, what would happen? Things would be a wreck. That's because we're not, we are not built for that. We're not built for a thousand other things that look reasonable in a world distorted by sin that seem good in the moment, but then but are actually poisonous to us. I remember when I was growing up, we always had old cars, and they always leaked fluids everywhere. Um, and, you know, you don't, on, the, on the driveway, it looks just like fluid. So my, the way my dad would test, probably like the way you have or your dad's tested or mom's, would be to taste the fluid, right? Hmm, that's oil, right? That's antifreeze. That's weird, but that's real, right? Um, that's why we have new cars that don't leak. I don't want to be tasting that stuff. But... Um, my dad would always say, antifreeze tastes sweet. And that's why antifreeze containers have warnings on them. Like, don't leave these out. If you, let, you, know, if you drained it out of your, your car and left it in a pan or something, you like a cat could drink it and die, which would be bad. I mean, worse if a dog drank it and died. But um, just kidding. I get my dig on cats in there occasionally. Um, but it's dangerous to your animals. A child, because it tastes sweet, could drink it. Which, it tastes fine initially, but the problem is antifreeze causes organ failure, you know, kidney failure. It's dangerous. Uh, it's a distortion. I think it, it tastes good, but it's a distortion because what comes in right behind it is destruction. Um, we live in a world distorted by sin that makes a lot of things that we're not built for look reasonable and taste good initially and then brings with it destruction. Over and over in the scripture, we see that the way out of distortion is simply to live under the authority of Jesus. He leads us in a wise way. Submission to Jesus. But let me be quick to add, this is submission to a Jesus who wants to do good to us. Do you know that? Do you believe that Jesus wants to do good to you? 
He wants to do the best good to you based on his omniscience and all-knowing understanding of everything in the world, history, all the plans he has, and his love for you. But his intention is to do good to you. In fact, he cannot not do good to you. His intention is to do us good. It's the best goodness. So, And he exercises his authority to do that. And the, fo- the foundational reality of that, or the foundational start of that, is recapturing this image of God that we're, re- we're designed for by receiving grace and following the one who's the true image of God. Who is the, who's the best example, the best representation of the image of God in history? Jesus, the divine image himself. And so part of following him is recapturing what we've been originally made for in this image. So the, the, bo- the main idea here, bolded at the top on the right in red, glad submission to the authority of Jesus is the way of life in the new world, this new world that, that Jesus is creating through his spirit. Glad submission, is it the exact same big idea as last week's sermon? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's the same text. It's the same idea. Glad submission is still the way of life in the world God is creating through his spirit. So if you remember last week, the leaders challenge him about his authority, like what authority do you have to do this? And he, of course, doesn't answer because Jesus is clever. And he tells him a story, a parable about a vineyard. The owner of a vineyard entrusted this vineyard to tenants who were the Jewish leaders. And he sent you know, God entrusts the vineyard of Israel to the leaders, and then he sends prophets, and the leaders reject the prophets and abuse the prophets and kill the prophets, and then he sends his son, and the leaders kill the son. And he ends by saying, and the vineyard is taken away and given to others. Okay, this is their response to that this week. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests, those are the leaders, sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. And that governor was Pontius Pilate. So the leaders get it, right? That parable was against them. (laughs) Yay, they're paying attention. But it was also for them. It was for them. Like all of Jesus' words... He speaks against people for them. It was for them. They could have repented and turned and embraced him. That's the strong words of warning in the scripture are against people for people, calling us to God, calling us to Christ, calling us to turn away from ourselves unto him. It's both against them and for them, but they don't think it's for them. They decide they're right now, we're going to get him arrested. We're going to take him out. So they stoop to a new low. They've never done this before, but they send spies. So probably what happened is they heard this. They were very offended, talked to themselves, pulled away, and then sent some other people who hadn't been there to, you know, in, in the temple, Jesus is teaching in these different places, and he's preaching sermons, and he has these followers. They come in, and they act like they're his followers. Oh, Jesus, we want to hear what you have to say. But really, they're trying to catch him and find something that he says that either use or twist to make it look like he's an insurrectionist or a revolutionary against the Roman government, so they'll get him arrested. So, They pretend to be sincere, but they're not sincere. They're just there to gather evidence. There's a resistance, of course, to the authority of Jesus. And the first thing we see here about glad submission to Jesus' authority is we have to recognize resistance to that authority. 
Recognize the resistance to that authority. Now, we can talk for a second just about top-level realities. Because Jesus' claim to lordship is an absolute claim, it challenges every other absolute claim, be that an idea, an institution, a person, a leader, whatever. And so we ought not be surprised that there's challenges to the lordship of Jesus in our culture, in any culture, in every culture, right? Uh, Jesus is making an ultimate claim. That means as followers of Christ, we must we must measure every other claim against the lordship of Christ. So I put this in your insert. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. It's a little bit dense language, but for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Oh, would God's people believe that? Oh, mercy. Uh, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world, Implication, what are they? Scripture, prayer, gospel. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds in that context would be uh, satanic strongholds around ideas and satanic powers. We demolish arguments and every pretense or pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So every thought must be measured against the lordship of Christ. That's part of the, the thinking world of the Christian. Okay, that's the top level. But I want to get a little more granular and talk about us. We often say, as Mark prayed in his prayer, that the kingdom of God is already, but it's not yet. It's begun, but it's not yet fully here. So that means we live in a world that's intermixed with, with sin and grace. The not yet is not just out there. <laughs> it's in here, too. That means the sin and evil that's out there is also in here. Right? The sin and evil that's out there is also in here and in there. I'm pointing specifically to people, right? It's in us. So it's a very helpful thing when we come to the Scripture and we see distortion in sin to ask, how, not, not to ask, how am I better than this person, but to ask, how is that same dynamic at work in my own soul? How is that same dynamic at work in my own soul? So when we come and we see these religious leaders chafing against the authority of Jesus, an appropriate application question is, Roger, how do you resist the temptation of Jesus? How are you tempted to resist the temptation of Jesus? The temptation, how are you tempted to resist the authority of Jesus? Is what I intended to say. No idea what I actually did say. Um, do you know how you're wired, how sin has broken you, how you're inclined to resist the temptation of Jesus? Do, do I know this about myself? Right? Maybe, I, maybe I just don't like being challenged, and I bristle at that. We have a word for that, pride. <laughs> maybe if God gives be the good gift of a friend or a spouse or a child who points out my sin. I get hostile about that. That is simply a way of resisting the authority of Jesus. Maybe I resent Jesus' authority over my money as expressed by lack of generosity or over my time as expressed by an unwillingness to spend time with people. Maybe we resent the uncertainty 
that might come into our lives if we self-consciously submit to the authority of Jesus. That's where these leaders were. I mean, they were in a particular spot in the, in the hierarchy there. Had they come under Jesus' authority, who knows what would happen? Jesus could throw their life into chaos and uncertainty. And they don't want that. So they resist the authority of Jesus. I put it, Romans 7 in your insert. We occasionally visit this passage. It's, again, it's very almost opaque language, but I, w- I would encourage you, friends, to be on a first-name basis with this passage of Scripture. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay? Not a seven-year-old, but the Apostle Paul. He kind of sounds like a seven-year-old. No offense to any seven-year-olds here. I'm just saying that it sounds almost childish what he's saying, but there's a clear uh, insight here. I do not, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is now no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is the Apostle Paul. Like this is a guy who self-consciously lives under the authority of Jesus Christ and has surrendered his life to this reality. And he said, here's what I see inside. There's a principle, there's a rebellion in me that the Bible calls my flesh that wants to throw off Jesus' authority. I don't want it, but it's real. In fact, he ends by saying, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, again, I've said this before, we'd never let our kids get away with that. Honest, Dad, it wasn't me. It was the sin that dwells in me that did it. um, And yet there's a deep reality to that. That the not yet is not just for other people. It's for us as well. So we can be certain that our flesh wants to resist the authority of Jesus. And if we are not aware of how that is, we will almost certainly be susceptible to it. Now maybe that's simply through keeping us away from his word or finding someone we can compare ourselves to that we seem, uh, you know, that are worse off than us in some way so we can feel satisfied in judging. But all of this is fueled by the fundamental lie that the authority of Jesus is a threat to us instead of a gift to us. Or the authority of Jesus is a restriction to us instead of freedom for us. This is the same lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. where God, Remember, God creates, and in his complete authority, he says to them, guys, you can have it all. Enjoy it all. Please enjoy every single thing. Use your taste buds and your eyes and your ears and your nose and your olfactory nerve to the best of your ability. Enjoy it all. Do not eat from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In my authority, I'm also telling you that. This is for your blessing, and it was. And then Satan comes along and says, you know, God's actually using his authority to restrict you from things. He knows that you'll become like him. He is keeping you from something. His authority is a curse. He's trying to take life from you, which is exactly the opposite that God was doing with his authority. He was attempting to give life to the people. 
through joy and fullness. We first, the first thing we see about glad submission to the authority of Jesus is recognizing the resistance that dwells in us. Secondly, verse 21, releasing the agenda. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. These guys are so full of it. You know, they don't mean this. They don't trust Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They're, not, they're just buttering him up. Verse 22, is it lawful, they ask him. So we know that you're, you're so wise. We just want to hear what you have to say on this. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Yes or no? <clears throat> So after they give false flattery, they ask this question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Tribute was a tax paid by Jewish families and Jewish businesses to the Roman government for the privilege of being part of the Roman Empire, a privilege the Jews had no say in and did not want. Right? They, so they were forced to pay money to the, to, the, to the Roman military and the Roman Senate and the Roman governance that they despised. So this is the tribute tax was a despised reality in the Jewish world. It was paying their oppressors to oppress them. No Jewish person liked this at all. Here's the deal, though. If Jesus says it's not lawful for you to pay the tribute tax, he looks like an insurrectionist, a revolutionary. And Roman centurions could come and fall on him in an instant, and things could get bloody in a hurry. It had many times this would be Messiahs like this. But if he said, yes, it is lawful, he looks like he just doesn't care about the Jewish people and their actual plight, which he does very much. And so he would lose favor with his followers. Now, that's not as good of an option for the people who are trying to trap him, but it's better than nothing, right? He would lose popularity. But what we see here is they got two agendas going on. One agenda, stop Jesus. Second agenda, get him to speak about the most important thing in our mind, in the land, the tribute tax. First agenda, stop Jesus. Secondly, uh, get him to talk about the most important issue, the tribute tax. So here's what we see here. When it comes to glad submission to Jesus' authority, it's not just recognizing the resistance in, inside. It's releasing the agendas we have. If you can let me stretch that a little bit. The benefit of living in a vibrant relationship with God is we have the freedom to bring our joys and our sorrows and our hopes and our ambitions to him. It really is. It's, it's a privilege we have as sons and daughters of God. It's a freedom. The temptation is to have a vision where we come with, with our agenda to God and try to work him onto it, make him get on it. And we pray in such a way, we can kind of complain against him when he doesn't want to doesn't do what we want him to do. Or we set up these deals with him in our mind where if, if we do this, then he'll do that. And he didn't set up the deal. We set up the deal. And, we, and then we get mad when we do this and he doesn't do that. You know why? Because it's not his deal. It's ours. But we just like the, there's a difference between pouring out our heart to God and trying to get him on our agenda, if that makes sense. On the other hand, we might shy away from full relationship with God because we do have an agenda that we like and we're afraid he might screw it up. Like, we really come to him, we got this thing going, we know how our life needs to go, this is what needs to happen, and we need to fix things this way, and do things this way, and if I were truly submitted to God, and truly, if I poured my heart out to him, he might change that. Uh, this is a good place to be reminded of Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, 
Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The reason we don't have to have an agenda when we come to the Lord is because he's got a really, really good agenda already. His intention is only this, to give us all things and to shape us into the image of his Son unto that day, the true image of God, which means, yes, to shape us so that we recapture our divine created image and what we were made for. So that means for me, it's learning to, when I pray, to be shameless in, in telling God what I want. Here's what I want. At the same time, resisting the temptation to give him the how it needs to happen and the when. I don't know what else he's got going on, but I know I can tell him what I desire. And he may change those desires. But when we get into the how and the what, we begin to agendize, agendize things a little bit. Because I haven't read from our book of the year, uh, Gentle Little Lowly, for a second, I'm going to read one little quote here. Page 133, these are for sale, by the way, out, right out there. It's good, it's worthwhile. Buy one, buy one for your friends. Give them away. As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. That's one of God's titles. He is not cautious in his tenderness towards you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need, and there is nothing he would rather do. Remember, said Puritan John Flavel, that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your Father and is much more tender to you than you are or can be to yourself. Your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your heavenly Father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you are even capable of toward yourself. He cannot not be tender with us. He cannot not be good to us. Now, we realize we see that through the lens of a distorted world. And we can't envision how hard things can be used to shape us in a good direction. He's the Father of mercies. Last week, we saw that Jesus doesn't demand us to see his authority. He invites us to see it. That's where the life is. I know that when I come to him with an agenda, it's very hard for me to see that. So we release agendas. Finally here, not just recognizing resistance and releasing agendas, but render to God the things that are God's. Verse 23. This is kind of buried under a couple millennia of cultural difference, but this is a fantastically wise response Jesus gives. Verse 23. He perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So whose likeness and inscription is on this denarius, this coin? So it was a, a um, Caesar's likeness was imprinted on it, a picture of Caesar. And that word likeness, though, there's a better word for that in English. It's image. Whose image is on this coin? So it's Caesar's image with the words, check out the inscription, Caesar Tiberius 
God and high priest, son of divine Augustus. <laughs> so Caesar claiming to be God and high priest and son of God. And Jesus is like, oh, I guess it's his. Give it back to him. Like if he's so insecure, he's got to stamp his face on everything, he must really need it. You should give it to him. So if uh, I borrowed a dollar bill from Joe Sugimura before service, I didn't have one. Um, so the dollar bill is kind of the, the basic, maybe you call it the basic unit of our monetary system, you know, until inflation makes it a $10 bill. But um, who's in, whose likeness is on it? Whose image? Does anybody know on the $1 bill whose it is? George Washington, right? The most iconic picture of Washington, right? Literally, Washington, D.C., right? Um, so here it is, and on the back, the great seal, in, in Latin, anuit septis, providence is for us, novus ordu seclarum, the new order of the ages, the order of the new ages, Pretty divine, those are pretty divine statements, the old uh, United States of America. Providence is for us, and we are the new order of the ages. So we might say as Christians, like, oh, well, if you need it that much, then you can have it back, right? Um, and I put, in, I put in your insert, I'm not going to dive into it, Romans 13 and Acts 5. The, by the way, the, the most American of temptations is to take this passage and make it about government. You know what that would be doing? Trying to get God on our agenda because that ain't what it's talking about. But Romans 13 does talk about that. And it says basically, look, obey the governing authorities unless they require you to do something God forbids or forbid you to do something God requires. If they forbid you to do something God requires, you ignore them. That's what, by the way, I, uh, Acts 5, this is in your insert too, they, had, they were told not to preach about Jesus anymore by the authorities. They ignored him. Acts 5, when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned Peter, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach anymore in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, well, we must obey God rather than men. You commanded us to do something, you forbid us to do something God commands. Tough, we disobey. As long as you're not doing that, generally will be obedient. So Christians should be good citizens. That's what this is saying. Unless the government calls you to do something God forbids or forbids you to do something God commands. And to do other, if you read Romans 13, is actually sin against God because he set up governing authorities. Okay. That's a different sermon. Here's the great part. He answers a question they don't ask. They asked about Caesar. He's like, verse 25, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They didn't ask about that. The coin has Caesar's image on it, right? He minted it. So Jesus is like, give it back to him. It must be his. It's got his image on it. Return, return it to the one whose image is stamped on it. Render it back to him. And render back to God, give back to God, the thing that has his image on it. And what is that? There's not a Jewish person in the first century that would not have committed to memory Genesis chapter 1, 27, which says simply this, so God created human beings in his own image, male and female, he created them. What is that which is in the image of God? You. 
me. And Jesus is saying, oh, guys, wait, you think the biggest question is should you pay tribute tax? Oh, a a far bigger question is will you render yourself back to the one whose image you bear? I don't know if you see the generosity here of Jesus to these guys. He doesn't call them out for their duplicity and deception and their lying and conniving. He doesn't. He offers them life. Give yourselves back to God, guys. That's his offer to them. I know what you think the biggest issue is, but let me tell you what the biggest issue actually is. So we may think the biggest issue is, will I get that job? Jesus says the biggest issue is, will you render yourself to God? How will the kids turn out? An important question. The other question is, better question is, will I render myself back to God? What's my health future? Important question. Will the marriage smooth out? Do I have enough to retire on? All appropriate questions after. Will I render myself back to the one whose image I bear? The biggest issue is for us to render our one precious life. Simply return it. That is the path of life in the world God has created and is recreating. But it's not just submit. It's not just submit. We are rendering our life, friends, to one who rendered his life for us already. Jesus rendered his life. He submitted his good to our best good. He rendered his life freely. He gave it up. He gave it forth so that we can render ours with joy back to him. This is part of the reason we go to the communion table every single week. It is a standing reminder and declaration and multi-sensory enjoyment of the reality that Jesus has rendered his life for us and he gives us grace now that through the Holy Spirit that we would render our life back to him over and over and over again. So I don't know what you got going on in your life right now. I don't know what it is. Lots of big questions, lots of things going on for some... I do know the first question that makes everything else clear and less distorted. Will I render my life in this situation to the one whose image I bear? If you feel weakened to do that, that's okay. There is strength from outside of you that flows into you by the Holy Spirit. That's why we're coming to the communion table. If you're in Christ Jesus by faith, we invite you to come to the table with us. We've changed this in the last couple weeks. We We will pass the elements out to you. And we invite you to hold them, and we'll all take them together at the very end. Uh, But if you're in Christ, this table is open for you. Let me pray, and I'll invite those serving to meet me at the table over there. I didn't choose servers beforehand, so if you're a deacon, an elder, or somebody willing to serve, just make sure by the end of the prayer, we got five people over there, and I'll join you. Um, Lord Jesus, you have rendered yourself for our good. When we see it clearly, we never have to doubt your agenda for our life. You've given yourself for us. You've treasured your people. You do treasure your people. Let us entrust ourselves to you. In Christ's name.